One of the joys of parenting is watching in real time what is often referred to as observational learning. Think of how children often learn by copying what they see. A child often learns to wave because a parent or somebody else keeps waving at the child. I remember Thea, when she would watch us eat, there would come times when before she had eaten, she would just start making like the movements of eating with her mouth. So we'd be sitting and we'd be eating and all of a sudden we'd look at her and she's like... I'm like, wow, she's just observing. Like, this is what happens when food goes in the mouth. And even though she doesn't have food in her mouth, she's copying it. She's observing and she's learning along the way. This doesn't only happen with children. This happens with adults as well. Um, My family and I were at a cafe that we often frequent. And I had wondered if there was a restroom in this cafe. It's a small place and I didn't see any signs for a restroom. And then one day we're in there and a guy gets up from one of the tables in the front and he walks towards the back. And I'm thinking in my head, this is the moment. I'm going to find out if there is a restroom in this place. And sure enough, he goes to the back where it seems to me that the store just ends and he vanishes from sight. And either something strange had happened or he found the restroom. And I found the restroom just by observing. As we get into the text this morning, there's a sense in which we are going to learn by way of observation. Now granted, we can't be there in real time and watch David pray this prayer, but I want you to have that mindset. As you watch what unfolds in the text before us, you and I should take the posture of disciples as though we're kneeling alongside of David as he comes before the Lord in prayer and we're observing his prayer. And granted, we can't see him praying, but we can hear him praying as it were. And we're not only hearing David's words as we study this psalm, we're hearing God's word Because it was the Holy Spirit who carried along David as he wrote the words for Psalm 5. Now, for those familiar with church history, you might have occasionally thought of or made reference to a man by the name of Pete Bexendorf without realizing it. He is the barber who asked Martin Luther, the great reformer, for instruction concerning prayer. And when he asked Martin Luther for instruction concerning prayer, Luther, in response, wrote an open letter to the man entitled, How One Should Pray for Master Pete the Barber. Now think about that. Personal instruction in public too. Personal and public instruction for Pete the Barber from Martin Luther. That's pretty neat. But vastly greater than that is personal instruction from the God of heaven concerning prayer. And Psalm 5 is, among other things, indeed that. It's personal instruction from the God of heaven concerning prayer. We'll get into the psalm itself shortly, but first let's consider the superscript briefly. The superscript to this psalm reads, To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. So this psalm was given to the chief musician. He essentially functioned as the director of the musical orchestra for Israel. He functioned in this way before the temple was built. The chief musician would be such a one who would have a role even after the temple was built and even would have a role in the second temple worship that would take place as well. Granted, they weren't all the same chief musician, but that role was there nonetheless. This was a psalm of David, and this was to be sung alongside of the musical accompaniment of flutes. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here is only used once in the Old Testament. It's a word that could be rendered as pipes or wind instruments. It's worth noting the word is in the plural here. And one of the things, just by way of a brief observation, when you go through the Psalter and you see how there were different accompaniments 
to the songs that are found in the Psalter, whether it's stringed instruments or whether it's with like flutes and woodwinds, as is the case here, you see how God, if you will, not only employs, but I would argue enjoys to be worshipped with the accompaniment of different musical instruments. We'll see more of it as we go through the Psalms as well. Now, we do not know the exact historical context of this psalm, but what is clear is that David was in danger from smooth-talking, deceitful, bloodthirsty men. As you go through the psalm, you can see that much. David is in a situation like that. And here's a man who knew what it was like to pray under intense stress and duress. And if you find yourself in a season right now where you feel as though you're under intense stress and duress, you can find great encouragement and instruction right here in this bit of instruction that we find in Psalm 5. So we begin in Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3, where we read, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. So the first thing I want us to notice is the earnestness and the desperate nature of David's pleading. What we have here is essentially what one commentator referred to as a pile-up of appeals. You look at verse 1 and you look at the beginning of verse 2 and look what you find. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. David, we could see, was emotionally invested in this prayer. David was not simply satisfied with David praying. David was not content to just hear his own voice in prayer. Like, you know what? This is what I just want to do. I just want to speak to God because I know it's the right thing to do and I have spoken in a room privately by myself and I feel satisfied with having spoken out loud. No, he was desperate to have God hear his voice. You can see the urgency. This was a desperate plea for divine help. He needed God's intervention, so again and again, not in vain repetition, but in earnest, heartfelt pleading, he sought the God of heaven. And I would argue this. Just beholding, watching, in verses 1 and 2, David's earnestness should prompt our own. And I would also argue it should prompt an evaluation of the current tenor of our prayers. Now, be careful, because if you begin to commit yourself to some sort of analysis to your prayers, it can lead to a paralysis of your prayers. But if you don't give any attention to analysis, you might slip into dispassionate murmuring without even realizing it. And I think any one of us would say that we do not like being on the end of some sort of disinterested, dispassionate conversation. Imagine if someone was talking to you and they were not interested in you hearing their voice, they just wanted to speak. Does that feel good? And sometimes we can kind of slip into that. And that that may be a little bit of instruction, right, for spouses and, and for husbands and wives and just for friends in general, that we would not be those who just, you know, speak in a kind of disinterested and dispassionate way. But if we're going to guard ourselves against doing that to the God of heaven, I would argue this. Just being aware of the staleness of our prayers sometimes can lead to prayer earnestness. 
So I'm not telling you to commit to this you know, rigorous analysis of your prayer life where you just kind of sit there and you anal- analyze every word that you say. But look at the tenor of your prayers. If you find yourself just kind of muttering words to God, like, Dear God, I come to you again today and I'm so thankful for this day. Thank you that you're there for me. I thank you that you love me. And I pray for uh, my neighbor who needs you. And If you just start doing that kind of thing and you look at that, you say, What am I doing? I'm just kind of dispassionately murmuring to the God of heaven. And you look at David here who's saying, Give ear, consider, give heed to my cry. You could learn from his emotional investment in this prayer. And I would argue that while there are many things that can make our prayer life stale, things like busyness, things like being overwhelmed with worry and concerns, things like being not too convinced that God is compassionately aware of your own situation. There are a lot of things that can make our prayer lives go stale, but I would argue that just being aware of the potential staleness of our prayers can lead to earnestness and ardor and fervency. So if we're going to learn from David, I think one of the first things we learn is to say, God, help me to pray with fervor. That doesn't mean that your voice is going to increase in volume necessarily. But it means you're going to be invested as you speak to the God of heaven. Committed, not dispassionate. Second, let's take a look at some of the details that we could easily overlook. David began by petitioning, and he said to the Lord, Give ear to my words. What an honest expression of the heart. Asking the all-hearing God to, as it were, listen closely. It's a petition that acknowledges condescension. It earnestly requests divine attention. Also, it's worth noting that in the Hebrew text, the word translated to my words is at the beginning of the sentence, often a place that's used to connote emphasis. Now, that might sound strange to English-speaking ears, that David begins this psalm by saying, To my words! And that can instruct us in a few ways, but at least in this way, David was speaking out loud to God. Knowing that God knows the thoughts of our hearts and knowing that He knows the words that are on our tongue before we even speak them can lead to us putting an undervalued premium upon speaking out loud to God. But when you look through the Scriptures, you see that the Scripture places a premium upon speaking out loud to God in prayer. I call your attention to that not to lock you into one way of praying. No but to be instructed by the prayer paradigm that's found in this psalm. Just because God can hear your thoughts doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak words. He wants to hear those too. And David sought not only for God to give ear to his words, but look at the next part of the verse. He said, Consider my meditation. The word for consider in the Hebrew is a word that means discern or understand. And that word for meditation is kind of connected to that root word that we saw in Psalm 1 verse 2. That word hagah, which means to meditate, or it could literally mean to mutter. And this word that's used here is only used two times in the Old Testament. Here's one, Psalm 39 is another. And this word for meditation here could speak to the thoughts of David's heart. It could speak to a kind of groaning. It could speak to unarticulated desires. So it's as though David is saying something like this to the Lord. Give ear to my words. And then he's saying, consider or Lord, discern, understand these unarticulated groanings and desires of my heart. It's as though David, as an Old Testament saint, knew the blessed truth of Romans 8.26. 
that the Holy Spirit is the one who we know helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us when we do not know how to pray as we ought with groanings too deep for words. I mean, sometimes you'll speak words to the Lord and you'll know what you're saying to Him. And sometimes you're in just pain in the midst of sadness and you just don't even have words at that moment. You may be crying and weeping and groans just come out. And it's as though the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf through those groanings. And David is saying to the Lord here, give ear to my words and discern, understand those unarticulated desires of my mind and my heart. How blessed is it to know that God hears both sentences and sighs. Bring them, saints. Bring them both to the Lord in prayer. He hears and understands all of it. Notice how also in the second part of the, of the verse, David modeled the mindset that befits not only Israelite kings, not only Old Testament Jews, but a mindset that befits New Testament Christians as well when he said, My King and my God, for to you I will pray. You have to love this. Because Israel's king was not without a king. If there was anyone in Israel who was to declare who the highest was, it was to be the king who was to declare that the most high is the highest. The king in Israel was not the highest. The king was under the highest. Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And so David is saying in this moment, the king is saying that he's praying to his king and to his God. There was a king who was above the king, and there was a king who was and is ultimately over all of the affairs of earth, now, then, and forever. And it was to that one to whom David prayed. Don't miss the use of the pronouns here either. Notice what David said. My king and my God. Spurgeon called this the grand argument of why God should answer our prayers. Because He is our King and our God. And we are not aliens. He is the King of our country. And kings are expected to hear the appeals of their people. Spurgeon would go on to say that He is ours by covenant, by promise, by oath, and by blood. You could use those pronouns as well. My King and my God. Our King and our God. Now two additional comments briefly about um, that phrase, For to you I will pray. For years in my Christian life, this little phrase has been very helpful to me. Um, if you have that little phrase in your mind, for to you I will pray, it can protect you against, guard against, ritualistic-like praying where we go through the motions of prayer without intentionally thinking of how God is on the receiving end of our prayers. Right? Because sometimes you could just show up and you could say, I'm showing up for prayer, and you may not intentionally realize in that moment how you're praying to God and He's on the receiving end of your prayers. A little bit more about that later on. Second, for to you I will pray this expression can be part of a more comprehensive apologetic against praying to, say for instance, the saints. Notice David says here, for to you I will pray. Now, someone might say, okay, well, David said that here. But just because David said, for to you I will pray, does not mean that David didn't pray to you know, others who had departed at some other place or that Christians cannot pray to others who have departed. Just because David said that here doesn't mean that we can't do that. Well, you'll note when you go through the Scriptures that the only sanctioned prayers that we are to have and what's modeled for us over and over again in the Scriptures is to pray to God. That's it. 
You can ask people on earth to pray for you. That's biblical. The Apostle Paul did that. But the veil was torn not so you can have access to saints who have gone to heaven already. The veil was torn so that you could come boldly to the throne of grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and show up before the very throne of your Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Not to mention, attempting to speak to the dead while fraught with all kinds of demonic deception is something that the Scripture identifies as an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Now, as we come to verse 3, this is amazingly instructive. I want you to notice in verse 3 that we're going to see a pattern to David's prayer. We also see a preparation to David's prayer and a sense of expectation in light of David's prayer. Verse 3 reads, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. So first note here, twice, David references praying to God in the morning. It was apparently David's practice to pray shortly after waking up. In a later psalm, David would in like manner say, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Psalm 55 verse 17. In Psalm 89, the psalmist there, a man by the name of Haman, he wrote the following, But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. In the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Brothers and sisters, it is wise to pray in the morning, at the beginning of the day, before the tasks and the trials and temptations of the day come. Martin Luther, in that letter to barber Master Pete, he told him, it is a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. Spurgeon, in like manner, noted that prayer should be the key of the day and it should be the lock of the night. Graham Scroggie noted, The first hour is to the day what the rudder is to the ship. Therefore, pray in the morning. Be prepared, however, for those subtle inclinations, what Luther referred to as those deluding ideas. And they say something like this, I am looking forward to praying this morning. I am so excited to do that. Lord, I am looking forward to spend time with you in prayer. I'm going to do it a little bit later on. You know it. We all know we've been there, right? I'm so excited. I can't wait to do this. I'm going to do it a little bit later on. I just have to check my email. I just have to make some tea. I'm just going to get a quick workout in. I'm just going to run to the store. I'm just going to come home and have lunch. I'm just going to go for a run. I'm just going to do whatever. I'm going I'm to have dinner with my family. I'm going to sit down and watch TV for a little while. I'm just going to see what's on at the news. I'm just going to do a family devotional. I'm going to go to sleep. And now I'm going to do it tomorrow morning, Lord. I am so excited to do and spend some time with you in that way. So be prepared for those things to arise. Um, think about this. If you were in the congregation of Israel and if you were singing this psalm, right, you would be saying as, as, as your own these words, So if you are a part of the congregation of Israel and you're singing out Psalm 5, verse 3, you're saying, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Yahweh. In the morning I will direct it to you. So perhaps today is the day 
Christians, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, you take it upon yourself to sing these words and say these words as your very own. To tell the Lord today and to resolve by His grace, in the morning you will hear my voice, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you. I love the imagery of thinking of the different members of the body of Christ here. Just imagining it tomorrow morning, let's say. And a whole bunch of voices at different times in the morning. Just lifting their voices up to God in prayer. And if I were to imagine a little map of Staten Island, where all of our different places, our houses are, or some, some cases Brooklyn, some places New Jersey, some, some cases maybe other places, but if I were to imagine having an aerial view of those houses, and imagining, as it were, incense rising up from each one of those houses in the morning as though they were the prayers of the saints rising up to heaven, to use language from the book of Revelation. How exciting that is! Imagine that! Imagine what that looks like from heaven's vantage point. Imagine what could be done and what could be accomplished in this earth if by the grace of God, saints of God, resolve and say, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you. I think of how ballistic missile trajectories, trajectories work. Granted, I do not know much about uh, ballistic missile trajectories, but I do know this, that in their first phase, they have a vertical ascent. Now, there's a lot of dynamics I don't fully understand. They may have an open phase or a closed loop phase and all of these different things, but the picture is rather simple for me to grab onto, that there's a vertical ascent, and that at some point in this vertical ascent, all of a sudden, it changes to a descent. So after this ballistic missile rises and goes up, all of a sudden when it reaches the point it's supposed to reach, all of a sudden the target is going to be in view and it's going to descend right towards the target and we know ballistic missiles can cause a lot of damage. But think about how much good can be done through the prayers of the saints as your prayers ascend, as it were, to heaven. And then as the God of heaven uses those prayers to advance His kingdom or to build up and strengthen His people. I hope it gets you excited to go to the Lord in prayer and imagine other brothers and sisters doing the same tomorrow morning and imagining what God might do through those prayers. Your prayers are indeed precious moments of communion with God, but they are also so often God-appointed munitions to the purpose of the advancement of His kingdom and the good of His people. But David's not done by way of instruction for us. He goes on and he says that he will prepare his prayer. In the language here, when David said, I will direct it to you, the Hebrew word for direct here speaks to setting something in order. As one commentator had noted, it referred to this word, how Abraham arranged the wood on the altar before um, the, the altar he constructed for Isaac. You see that in Genesis 22.9. It could speak to how the sons of Aaron were to arrange wood on the fire in Leviticus 1.7. And I like the suggestion of this commentator that the idea may be that David's prayer was arranged and set in order like a kind of morning sacrifice to God. So that word for direct has the idea of setting something in order. So let me encourage you, in light of the perspective imagery that's used here, the potential imagery that's used, see your morning time of prayer as part of your New Testament priestly privilege. 
maybe you wake up and before you go to pray, you just start thinking in your mind of some of the things that you have to pray for. You wake up and you say, well, this morning I know this is coming. I know I spoke to so-and-so yesterday. And you start arranging your prayer. And then you go to the Lord having prepared your prayer. And like a New Testament priest, you walk in that priestly privilege. And you offer up your prayer to God. Your prayer is like the offering of the morning sacrifice of a New Testament saint's praise, petition, confession, and thanksgiving to God. Now David not only instructs us with his pattern and his preparation, but also with his expectation. The phrase, and I will look up, connotes expectation. It's the same kind of language that's used in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. It speaks of being on the lookout like a watchman. That's what David is saying here. So I'm going to prepare my prayer. I'm going to lift my voice to you. And then I'm going to look expectantly to see what you do. I'm going to watch. And I don't know about you, but I know when I look in my life, and I've apologized to the Lord for this, too often in my life I have seen prayer without even realizing it as deposits of spiritual discipline that produce dividends of godliness without waiting and watching like a farmer who has sowed seed to see what the harvest will be. That doesn't mean I know exactly how God is going to answer my prayers. If I'm praying something like James chapter 1 verse 5 and I'm asking for wisdom or you're asking for wisdom in light of what the scripture tells us there, we should expect to receive it. And we should spend the rest of the day or the moments that follow our prayers watching to see how God will provide us with the wisdom that He promised. And some things you do not know how God may answer. But nonetheless, we should be like watchmen who are waiting for the morning to see what God will do. And too often we don't do that. We sow the seed of our prayers and then we leave forgetting to even look for the harvest to use language from Charles Spurgeon. Let us not do that. So now all of that leads up to the four at the beginning of verse four. Because you might say, well, where did this confidence come from? David is praying the way that he's praying in verses one through three and then he's saying, and I will look up. So he's connoting the sense of expectation. And then you may ask, where did this confidence come from? Why is he looking with such expectation? Well, the answer comes at least at the beginning of it, but it flows out and through the verses that follow. It becomes the beginning of verse four and as we continue reading on in this psalm. But for now, we'll read verses four through six. Four... You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So, first let me say, this begins to clue us in to what the historical context was behind David's petitioning. There were evildoers, verse 4, who were boastful, beginning of verse 5, who were identified as workers of iniquity, second half of verse 5, who speak falsehood, verse 6, who were bloodthirsty and deceitful, second half of verse 6, and they were apparently the enemies that he identifies a little bit later on in verse 8. So that's a little bit of who David's enemies were, but David could pray the way that he prayed because he knew who God was. 
Right? He could pray the way he prays in verses 1 through 3 and say, I will look up, I will expect, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. He's appealing to God's character, especially in that old covenant context as the Lord's anointed, as the King of Israel. He's saying, I'm praying knowing that you are in opposition to the evildoers that are around me. I know your character. So it's in light of God's character that David's praying. That is instructive for us as well. He doesn't just have a pattern. He doesn't just have expectation. He doesn't just have this kind of motif to his prayers. But he's praying in light of not only knowing God relationally, but knowing God objectively. He knows objective truths about who God is. And he prays and expects in light of that. Look at the beginning of verse 4. He says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. So David here is thinking upon God's holiness. The one true God is not like the false gods of, say, the pantheon of Greek mythology. Those false gods indeed did wickedness and delighted in wickedness. Zeus had a problem with fidelity. Cronus ate his children, fearing that his children would one day overthrow him in fulfillment of a prophecy. And you go through the pantheon of Greek mythology or other false gods, and you see that there are a number of examples of false gods who delight in wickedness, but the one true God is not like that. It may be hard to believe, but even in the days of Israel, specifically the days of the prophet Malachi, there were those who, for instance, in Malachi 2.17 said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Make no mistake. God does not have an affinity for sin. We know that for us as fallen human beings, there is what the Scripture identifies as a kind of passing pleasure to sin. That sin may feel sweet for a moment, but then it turns so bitter. But God doesn't have any inclination like that. He is light in whom there is no darkness at all. David continues and he wrote, Nor shall evil dwell with you. In other words, God will not let iniquity into his house. You might say God will give no room or board to evil. Evil shall not dwell with you. You go back to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, right towards the end, you find that as it relates to the celestial city, God is so holy that concerning the new Jerusalem, we're told in Revelation 21, 27, but there shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Evil will not dwell with Him. You go to verse 5. David writes, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Interesting word in the Hebrew, this word for boastful. It can mean, and often does mean, something like shine or praise. It's often used in positive ways, speaking of, for instance, praising Yahweh. Here, however, it's clearly negative. It speaks of someone who is arrogant. Someone who is a self-praiser. That's the boaster here. And the boastful will not stand in God's sight, meaning that someone who is an arrogant self-praiser, if that's how they are characterized in God's sight, they will not be welcomed into God's presence. They will not stand in His sight and be welcomed in His presence, received into His presence. For a person to be identified by their arrogance is to not be a Christian. Consider the two, it would be oxymoronic. Then we come to the strong language of the second half of verse 5. Look at the second half of verse 5. You hate all workers of iniquity. 
As Alan Ross has noted, this is not simply a reference to people who sin. The participle describes people whose characteristic activity is that of doing iniquity. But note the verse here. This verse reveals a clear holy hatred, not only against sin, but against the unrepentant sinner. It makes you not want to flippantly say, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. God's disposition towards the indefinitely unrepentant is more complicated than that. And in case we missed what's said in verse 5, we essentially see it again in the next verse. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now first, this gives us a little bit more insight as to what David was up against. Apparently, there were those that were slandering him. He was being slandered, and they desired to shed his blood. But this passage not only tells us about David's situation, it tells us about God. When David wrote, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood, we are reminded that God will judge those individuals who are marked and characterized by speaking lies. The book of Revelation clearly attests to that. Second half of Revelation 21 verse 8 says, All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now back to the idea at the second half of verse 5 as we look at the second half of verse 6. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I would argue these verses test a person. They essentially ask, has the Bible constructed your view of God? Or have you taken pieces of biblical revelation while leaving others out? There's a lot to be said. There's much for us to consider. First, there's a mysterious element of holy hatred that God has for the indefinite, unrepentant sinner. Notice what this verse doesn't say. It does not say that God hates bloodthirsty deeds and words of deceit. It's not what the text says. Rather, it says that God abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 22 is another example of such a text. The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Referring back to this verse, the commentator Willem van Gemmeren notes, the particular sins are examples of a way of life. And just before that, he noted, God hates both the sin and those who sin against Him. Now, this isn't an isolated reference. It's not just you know, Psalm 5, verse 5. It's not just Psalm 5, verse 6. You go in Psalm verse 7, you see that God is angry with the wicked every day. You go to Psalm 11 and you see that God hates the one whose soul loves violence. You look at Psalm 22, verse 14 that I just read to you, and you see that same idea here again. So there is a mysterious element of holy hatred as it relates to the unrepentant, indefinitely unrepentant sinner. Now second, I want us to note this. This hatred is contextually, within these verses, contextually connected to being rejected from God's presence. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Evil will not dwell with him. The second half of verse 4. The boastful shall not stand in his sight. Verse 5. He will destroy those who speak falsehood. There is a sense in which those who have rejected the Lord will be rejected by Him. And those are those pictures that are connoted in verses 5, 4, 5, and 6. Now third, and this is really important. 
remember that God's heart, if you will, towards the non-elect requires a nuance of multiple texts. God is the one who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his or her own way. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God is the one who stretched out His hands all day long to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Romans 10, 21. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You see that in Matthew 23. You see that in Luke 19. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. The Lord abhors the one whose soul loves violence. All these statements are true, and just because it may be difficult for a human being to splice the nuances of all those feelings doesn't make them untrue. Fourth, notice the coupling of the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In our world, we might think that the two were miles away from one another. And granted, there are differences, of course. But the fact that they are coupled together speaks to the seriousness of deception, assuming, of course, we know the heinousness of murder. The bloodthirsty man assaults the image of God in man, while the one who speaks lies speaks the language of the devil. Think of the wickedness of those who, for instance, promised the reformer or pre-reformer John Huss safe passage, but instead he was burned at the stake. They were both deceitful and bloodthirsty. Huss was to appear at the Council of Constance, and he was assured by the as it was referred to, the Holy Roman Emperor, that he would have safe passage and that he would have a platform to share his views. Neither happened. He was not granted safe passage. He was arrested and he never had an opportunity to have that platform to share his views. He was given repeated opportunities to recant and when it was seen that he would not recant, from what I understand, he was dressed in priestly clothes according to one account and then he was stripped of those clothes one by one and he was burned at the stake by bloodthirsty and deceitful men. He prayed to the Lord Jesus and he told the Lord Jesus that he endured this cruel suffering for him and he prayed for his enemies that God would have mercy upon them. And from what I understand, as he burned in those flames, he recited the Psalms. Psalm 5, in many ways, would have been a fitting psalm for him to recite in that moment. Fifth, know in light of these verses, 4 through 6, to use language from Spurgeon, who I think is using language from Edwards, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let me just say a warning in this moment. You need not be numbered among those who are identified in verses 4 through 6. If you only turn from your sin and look to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forever welcomed into the presence of God. This should be a warning. Imagine being on the receiving end of holy, divine, righteous indignation and wrath. But you need not be on the receiving end of that because the Lord Jesus Christ absorbed all of that. When He died on the cross for all who would believe on Him for the forgiveness of sins. So may you turn from your sin. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and resurrected and has ascended. And you will never be numbered among such ones, but you'll be numbered among those who could be uh, sharing the same language that David shares in verse 7, to which we'll get in a minute. Six, there is a sense in which the believer, while of course wanting to see the wicked come to Christ, in light of these verses, can nonetheless find a refuge in the justice of God. More about that, Lord willing, next week. 
But that brings us to verse 7. David's position was not like these other men. In verse 7 he writes, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now you might recall the contrastive pronoun that was joined to the conjunction in Psalm 2 verse 6. It's strong here. But as for me... This is strong language. David is contrasting himself to the previous men. He's saying that he's not like the bloodthirsty. He's not like the deceitful and the wicked and the arrogant men. And now you might have expected David at this moment to give a kind of unfolding of his superior spirituality. But as for me, I'm not like the wicked and the bloodthirsty. But as for me, I am the man who is a man after God's own heart. As for me, I will follow you, Lord. I will run hard after you and so on. But that's not what David does here. He says, but as for me, and you should be thinking, what I'm thinking is, how could David, unlike these men, come into the presence of God? Because David, we know, was a sinner. David was what many of us would identify as a bad sinner. David did shed blood. David did lie and deceive. So how could David say that he would come into the Lord's house? God's not going to give any room or board to evil. We saw that. Yet David says, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. That's how David's coming. He's not walking into the throne room of God on the ragged rug of supposed self-righteousness. He's coming in on that carpet that is a beautiful carpet that has been secured by the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Supposed righteousness will not let one enter into God's presence. It needs to be true righteousness. And that righteousness is only received through the kindness of God. He will enter according to the multitude of God's mercy. God's mercy is not like a leaky faucet, if you have one of those in your home. It's not like that. God's mercy is like a never-ending waterfall. And if you look at the way this word multitude is used in the Scriptures, you look at all the different examples, it could refer to a multitude of Hagar's descendants. It could refer to the multitude of Abraham's descendants. It could refer to the multitude of stars in the sky, which human beings can't even number. But all of those multitudes pale in comparison to the multitude of God's mercy. And David says, but as for me, I'm coming into your house according to the multitude of mercy. Not the raggedy rug of supposed self-righteousness, but upon the beautiful carpet of the multitude of God's mercy secured through the shed blood of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. You and I have committed a multitude of sins. But the multitude of God's mercy is more. It's by grace that we draw near to God. It's through receiving the grace of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're forever welcomed into God's presence. Last thing I'll call your attention to and then we'll close. This reality of grace and friendship in light of God's kindness secured for us through the blood of His Son is not without reverence. David wrote, In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now the words here, In fear of you, I will worship, could be rendered as, In reverence of you, I will bow. So David knows he's coming into God's house in light of the multitude of God's mercy. That doesn't make him overly casual or flippant. He's going to come into God's presence with holy fear and reverence. We notice in these verses that his practice, as was the case with other Old Testament saints, was to pray in the direction of the temple. Um, Notice here, by the way, historically, um, the temple was not built yet. 
right? So he refers to God's house in the first half of verse 7. talks about God's temple in the second half of verse 7. But the temple wasn't built yet. It's okay. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 1 Samuel chapter 3, you see that the same word used for temple is used to refer to God's house, meaning where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. So that's where David is looking towards in this moment. So there David is amidst the threat of enemies. And what is he committed to doing? Worshiping God. Praising Him for the multitude of His mercy. Saying, I will come into your presence And here he is praying and all these petitions flow out from a place of access and fellowship. They flow out from a place of understanding who God is. And they flow out from a place of committed worship and service. That's only verse 7. There's more, but I just want to say this as we close. If you take by the grace of God these words in verse 7 as a kind of paradigm for you, and perhaps if your conviction might be even this day to own these words as your own, Who knows what God may do through your life? Not only later today, but in the mornings that will follow. I ask you to consider that. To pray and to ask God to give ear to your words. To be emotionally invested in your prayers. Perhaps, beginning tomorrow morning, you will arise and the Lord will hear your voice in the morning. And you'll prepare your words. You'll be thinking about them. Not to the point of paralysis, but you will give some thought before you go to God in prayer. And then you will pray, and then you will look up, and you will look to see how God might answer your prayers. And you will pray, even as you saw David do, in light of who God is. It's in light of His character. And you will thank God that unlike the bloodthirsty and the wicked and the deceitful, you, having been washed by the blood of the Lamb, you can enter into God's very presence in the here and now, according to the multitude of His mercy secured by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what God might do through the saints in this place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name and we know, Lord, that we come into Your presence even now according to the multitude of Your mercy. Although our sins, they are many, the multitude of Your kindness and mercy is indeed more. Thank You for such unfailing love. Thank You, Lord, for such instruction that You you teach us. And even in the days in which we live, nonetheless, Your Word continues to be, as it has always been, Lord, a lamp unto the feet of Your people and a light unto our paths. So, Father, may You find us, Lord, lifting our voices up to You. May You conform us more to the image of Christ. David's greater son, who arose early and would offer up loud cries with tears. Lord, may you find us, Lord, out of love for you and love for others, lifting our voices and looking up. Oh, Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for revealing to us and opening our eyes to your greatness and glory and goodness and immutability and power and faithfulness and love. May you move us to walk in light of what we've seen in this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.